knees. It turns out uh, that when you go fishing out on the water, you need to put sunscreen on the piece of leg between your shorts and your knees when you're sitting on an esky out in the sun all day. Mistakes were made. Uh, the other mistake that was made was that we ran out of petrol whilst on the water. And we, uh, we had a spare jerry can of petrol, but we didn't have a funnel. And so we just did the tip and hope. And some of it went into the fuel tank and we made it back uh, quite relaxed, quite relaxed, possibly because of the fumes. But uh, we made it, we made it, uh, and it's good to, um, to be here. Um, look, so much has changed while I've been away. There's a, it's great to see so many new faces and as well, exciting to hear that we've started our time in Nehemiah, which is like the biblical opposite of the book of Romans. It's narrative, it's Old Testament, um, it's, it's story, it's less heady, but um, hasn't it been great thus far? I've been having a listen to the way in which Mike has been, been leading us over the last little while and, and found myself being encouraged by how practical and how, how useful this, this story is. Um, today, as we pick up the story of Nehemiah uh, again, um, it reminded me of those moments in life where uh, you wait for a thing to happen for a long time, uh, and on the day when it finally happens, it's, it's like too good to be true, it's like, is this really happening, it's like, this is surreal, um, maybe the best example I can think of in my life um, is that Elise and I met uh, through a, a youth ministry kind of situation, but it was one of those, we were young, um, I was a leader on a youth camp, and she was in grade 12 as a student on a youth camp, which even though there's only two weeks, two years between us, that puts her firmly out of bounds. It's the rules on youth camp, leaders don't date students, doesn't matter if it would be sane in any other context. And so I met Elise and was very interested in her from the moment that we met, but I knew it was going to be some time before I was allowed to display any such interest um, and then over the next uh, couple of years, we spent a bit of time hanging out. We did the, we did the going to the cinema together. Um, she bought my trombone, which, by the way, was a long-term plan to then get the money and then marry her and receive the trombone back again. That was, <laughs> that was the long game that I'm playing, the long con. Uh, and then comes the day, however many years later, sitting in an airport in, uh, in Vienna, of all places, on the way back from a, a short-term mission trip to Bulgaria, where um, the ministry is finished, we're on the way home, sparks have been flying, uh, we've bonded over ministry, we've bonded over music, we've bonded over personal interests, and I think to myself, well, I'm going to tell her that I'm interested. And I came out with a line that, that no sane woman uh, could have resisted. I think, <laughs> I think I said something along the lines of, um, I think you're pretty rad in a boy-girl kind of way. I think that's a direct <laughs> quote um, of how the relationship began, and well, the rest is history, as you can imagine because she is a woman of impeccable tastes. And so, <laughs> I, I remember about that conversation, um, just sitting there thinking, is this really happening? This is, this is a conversation that's been two years in the making. Uh, two years of friendship, two years of hanging out, two years of will they, won't they, two years of Ross and, Ross and Rachel. Uh, it, it wilts in comparison to Mike and Larissa's sort of 15 years of Ross and Rachel, um, which everyone who's been around this church for a long time will remember unfondly. Uh, <laughs> And yet here in the book of Nehemiah, here's the segue, uh, here in the book of, of Nehemiah, uh, we have uh, Nehemiah having one of those moments. He, um, he's been waiting four months for the conversation that we're going to be reading about today. His life has been defined over the last four months uh, about what um, carrying with him a, a burden for God's people. He's, he's heard the news that in the Holy Land, things are not going well. 
um, that even though some of the exiles have returned, in one sense the exile is over, uh, and yet the life of God's people living in Jerusalem is hard, the city is still in ruins, the, 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 the thing is not going well, everything's looking precarious for the people of God in the Promised Land. Uh, and that message has, has cut him to the quick. In the book of Nehemiah, what we're actually seeing is that um, God has a plan to restore his people in the land. God is getting the pages of history ready for the arrival of Jesus. And in order to bend history to his will, God has placed his call on a man. Um, it took the form of a simple conversation uh, that has left him unable to think about anything else. This conversation has dominated his waking thoughts. Uh, the knowledge of what is happening in the Holy Land um, has consumed him. And in his reaction to that conversation, we see the supernatural hand of God. This is a God moment. This is one of those conversations. They happen sometimes. You can't manufacture them. Have you ever had something like this in your life? It's, perhaps this is what coming to faith for the first time is like for a lot of people, where you have a conversation that leaves you forever changed, an encounter with God through the ordinary that leaves you transformed. Um, perhaps that's how God called you into his family as a Christian. There was a conversation or two that just, they're seared into your memory forever. You remember every word, every emotional nuance. That conversation for you carries a significance far greater than it should, considering it was just a conversation. And yet, nonetheless, the Lord had been speaking to you loudly. Nehemiah, being a man of faith, has just had this encounter with God in speaking with his fellow countrymen. And all of this has driven him to prayer. And that's where Mike had us sitting last week. Uh, and a reminder again, if you, haven't, if you haven't managed to get that in your diary, this Wednesday night, we're going to be gathering as a church to pray in response to the Word of God calling us to pray. Today, we're going to see the way in which prayer and action talk to each other in the life of faith, in the life of ministry. The end of Nehemiah chapter 1 finished with these words, now, I was cupbearer to the king, which is the transition uh, between what has been happening before and what is happening now. It sets the scene for what we are about to read. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king of the Persian Empire. It's an important position. If you don't know what a cupbearer is, it's what I was this morning to my wife as she lay in bed because it's Mother's Day. <laughs> the cupbearer's job is to taste the food of the king before the king does. It's a very simple practical position. It is there to prevent assassination by poisoning. It's what we call the crash test dummy of the food world. He is the guinea pig checking for poisons. He's the canary in the coal mine to make sure that the king's life is not in danger. Apparently, assassination was a, a big problem and poisoning was a common method. And so the cupbearer is a position of trust. It's a position of trust because if you want to poison the king, the cupbearer needs to be in on it somehow or it's not going to work. He's going to drop dead and the king's not going to eat the food, right? He has to be someone whom the king trusts implicitly with his own life. We pick up the story in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the um, 20th year of King Artaxerxes, now, uh, this, this, we'll just stop there really quickly. We can't be 100% certain here with how the calendars line up, but the most sort of obvious interpretation of what is happening here is that this next scene is taking place 
four months after what we heard about last week where Nehemiah had the conversation with his countrymen. For four months, Nehemiah has had the weight of the Lord's conviction sitting on him and it has been driving him to pray for the Holy Land and the people living there for four months. For four months. 16 weeks. He has been concerned. He has been chewing on. He has a weighty burden on him, which is causing him to, to feel all the feelings. This is, this is not an emotionally neutral time for Nehemiah. We can, only con, uh, we can only presume, it seems obvious, that he has continued to pray for that whole four months in the way that we have just read about in his own words, what his prayer to the Lord was. Mike did a great job last week of describing to us the kinds of things that go into a, a healthy prayer life, the, the ACTS acronym. Hopefully you remember that, it's very useful. And it's safe to assume that Nehemiah has continued in all these kinds of prayer in response to what the Lord has placed on him. So in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. This moment is one of those moments. For four months, Nehemiah has been asking for this to happen. And here it is being served up on a platter for him. This moment is important. The moment is also dangerous. It's dangerous for a couple of reasons. One, it's dangerous because a distressed cupbearer is a suspicious cupbearer. If your job is to be the implicitly trustworthy food taster to keep the king alive, and you're standing next to him at a meal looking nervous, what is an all-powerful God Emperor going to think about that? It's also dangerous because the thing that Nehemiah wants to ask the king for is a thing which has been forbidden by, I believe it was one of the previous kings, a thing which is against the law, against the will, revealed will, of the kings. This might be interpreted as treasonous rebellion, what he's about to ask. You know those people we conquered? Can they rebuild the walls of the city? Can they become a presence again within your kingdom capable of rebelling against you? In other words, this moment is life-threatening for Nehemiah. Perhaps you've heard of the bravery of Esther in asking her husband, a different king, to show Israel favor. And brave it was, we should find Esther praiseworthy. And yet here's a, another moment like it. Nehemiah stands before a king with ultimate power over life and death. There's no equivalent today. Knowing what the Lord would have him do. This is the moment that he has been praying for, he's been asking for. This is the opportunity that has been working on his heart for months of preparation, and now, all of a sudden, unlike my previous trip, the fish are jumping in the boat. Blink and you'll miss it. The resolution to months of build-up. Have you had moments like that in life? A conversation that just carries more weight than it should. It's a, it's a supernatural moment. Where you've been wanting something for a long time, aren't even sure if it'll ever be a thing, then all of a sudden, 
Here it is. For example, on my way home from the fishing trip, I drove back through Gympie and I saw that they still have an all-you-can-eat Pizza Hut restaurant. And I'd given up hope, you know. It was as beautiful as the first time I saw one. Now, there's a moment, uh, a spiritual moment, that just has this immense build-up behind it, and yet it somehow, at the same time, snuck up on you. I don't get the impression that Nehemiah woke up that morning thinking to himself, today is the day I talk to the king. That's, that's not how that morning ritual went. He woke up feeling the same distress he'd been feeling for four months. He, he made his coffee. The ancient version of a coffee maker. I don't know what that looks like. He, um, he did his hair. He put on his clothes. He went to work. And there at work, through events not, not within his decision, not within his control, through means beyond avoidance, he finds himself in the moment. It's happening. The king has brought it up. He has asked me directly, Nehemiah, what's going on? I can see something in your face. This is a sadness of the heart. Tell me what's happening. And in that snap moment, Nehemiah, the man of faith, decides to go for it. Verse 3. I said to the king, let the king live forever. It's a good thing for the cupbearer to say. It builds trust. Why should not my face be sad when the city... The place of my father's graves lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And then the king said to me, what are you requesting? And so I prayed to the God of heaven. Um, Unlike in chapter 1, we don't get an extended account of Nehemiah's prayer here. We get that sentence. So I prayed to the God of heaven. Mike gave us that helpful prayer structure last week. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, This prayer is part of a category that that acronym overlooks. It's the prayers that go like this. Ah, help! Amen. I call it panic. It goes before adoration and changes the acronym to PACTS. (laughs) Nehemiah prays to the God of heaven. All of that happens in his head in a moment. And then I said to the king, verse 5, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what was asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Now you can miss it because it's so simply stated here, that this conversation between Nehemiah and Artaxerxes is more important than it should be. This is not just a conversation between a cupbearer and a king. This conversation is one of those hinges on which the pages of history turns. 
This is, this is the shot fired that's, that kickstarts World War I. It's, it's of that kind of significance. A single conversation, the effects of which are still being felt in the world today. Because with Nehemiah returning to build the walls of Jerusalem, the ground is now set for the preservation of Jewish identity heading into the future, the presence of God's people in the Holy Land. There is a direct connection between this conversation and the birth of the Christ in the Holy Land. Without this moment, we don't get Jesus. an essential link in the chain of God's plan. And yet, in another sense, it's one conversation. Can you feel how those things sit side by side? What helpful things do we find in this account of this faithful man's encounter with a king? Why don't I pull out a few thoughts? And the first is this. I think the first thing that we see here is the principle that all Christians are gospel ministers. That all Christians are gospel ministers. One of the mistakes that we can make with the gospel of grace is to narrowly focus on how it begins to the neglect of the whole picture of the life of faith. We can come to think of life with God as, I prayed... I invited God in, and so now I am a Christian, which means I'm free to go on about my life just as before, except now I've got a a, a sort of a safety net of security sort of hanging beneath my life. That's what Christianity is. It's easy to make that mistake. A lot of people do. It's a mistake which comes about because we exaggerate one part of God's truth over another part of God's truth. Salvation is... By grace alone, we do not contribute a thing to it. It's an important part of the message of Christ to us. But that saving grace is a grace which is also going to transform our lives and to set us on a different path than the one we were on before we encountered God. For example, tonight we will be symbolizing this in baptism. Notice the whole metaphor. When you are saved... You die, you are crucified with Christ, and your old life is buried. This is what we symbolize as we push people under the water. This is the death of the old life with Christ on the cross. And then, together with Christ, you are raised again to new life. As you come up out of the water, every part of you is wet. Every part of you is now filled with the Spirit. Every part of you now is a part of a new life which belongs to God. And what that means is, for the Christian, the whole of our new life is lived with and for God. This is summed up beautifully by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where he describes the life of faith as this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's a whole of life thing, do you see it? Lived for and with 
the God who has saved us. Now, Nehemiah isn't a Christian in, in the narrow sense of the word. He lives on the other side of the cross for us. He didn't know all of that. He didn't experience all of that in the same way that you and I do. But even then, as a man of faith in the same God we worship, he understood that to belong to God is to serve the Lord. That to belong to the Lord is to serve the Lord. Our experience of God is is deeper and better than his. We have the clarity of the Great Commission as our guiding light, which means that all Christians are gospel ministers. We use our lives to serve God as he builds his kingdom. Which part of our lives do we use to serve the Lord? And the answer is the whole thing. All the parts that died, all the parts that rose again, those are the parts that now exist in service to the Lord. When you are at home with your family, if you're a Christian, you are there to serve the Lord. Every friendship, every moment in your workplace, wherever and whenever you are, you are there to serve the Lord as a minister of grace. The church is not a passive crowd of consumers or onlookers watching other people do stuff. We are all participants in this ministry as a kingdom of priests called into a life of service to God together. Like Nehemiah, we need to understand that every ordinary part of our life belongs to our God. And we need to have our eyes open to see how we can be useful for him. Here's the next thing I want to pull out. 99%, this is an exact number because I'm good at numbers. 99% of that life is lived in the ordinary and 1% of that life is lived in the extraordinary. The 99% and the 1%. Most of the Christian life is lived in the normal. Most of holiness, most of ministry is routine, normal, practical, spiritual disciplines. Rhythms of grace. Read your Bible, believe and do what it says. That is most of the Christian life. Most of what the Christian life involves, most of the things that you need to do, are explicitly described on the pages of your Bible. Most of your life is going to look like this. Pray, use your gifts, rest well, fellowship with other Christians, repeat. That's a Christian week. This is where we do uh, responsible planning and rhythms. And Mike says amen. (laughs) It's not spectacular. It's, It's not rocket surgery. It is a life of substance and joy. We live like this all the time. This is where we learn to be consistent. This is what we've seen Nehemiah do for four months. Wake up in the morning, bring your burdens to God, serve him with your day. It's not spectacular. We, we grow as disciples. We take part in God's mission. We do Christian community in these very ordinary ways. And there's much to be gained by getting good at the regular rhythms of godliness. But then amongst that normal, everyday kind of discipleship is the spectacular 1%. Nehemiah is doing the same job that he did yesterday. But today the king initiates a conversation 
that's going to transform the planet, the history of the human race. An opportunity knocks him on the head that is beyond his own creation, and he just has to get on board. And so the other part of the life of service is simply about keeping your eyes open, just looking up and noticing moves of the spirit that you can cooperate with that go beyond planning. This is described really well, I think, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 10, where we read this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I've always found that verse to be incredibly practical and incredibly helpful. It's a cool picture. A Christian, a believer, you're God's handiwork. He has made you with his own hands. Isn't that special? So gracious and stable. You were made for good works. And yet those good works have been prepared for us in advance. Not only has the hands of God made you, those same hands which have saved you have been at work in the world, creating beforehand opportunities for you to stumble upon. That You didn't create them. God created them before you were present. He goes before us and prepares the way. Not only this, he has created these good works in advance for us to do, that we should walk in them. The picture looks like this. You were going through life doing ordinary Christian obedience, and then a fish jumps into the boat, and you have to hit it with the paddle. These two parts of the Christian life speak to one another. They're a matched set. Nehemiah has been praying for this opportunity for months. He's been asking for it. He's been wanting it. He's been doing basic faithfulness. And then today, for some reason, here it is. Get on board. Respond. You've got a couple of seconds to make the decision before the moment is passed. Nehemiah's job is to notice what the Lord is doing and to walk into it. He has to seize the opportunity, but that opportunity has been placed there by the hand of God. This pattern occurs in all of our lives at various times and in different ways, and both are parts, both are indispensable parts of the lives that God is calling us to live. The daily rhythms of grace are about receiving grace from God. Likewise, the sudden opportunity is a moment of grace because it is the gracious hand of God which has provided it. Grace covers you today and grace will cover you on that day to help you to do what needs to be done. And so God is calling you into his service, into his ministry. Do you understand how both parts of this picture are going to play a role in your life as a Christian and in your ministry? I find that as people, we tend to prefer one of these or the other. Do you know what I'm talking about? Something about our personalities. This is what our fallen nature does. 
is that we tend to place God's truths in competition with each other when really they are friends. For some of us, we love the routine. We love the planned. We love the ordinary. Give me structure and principle and consistency. You know who you are. All this talk of miraculous occasions seems dangerous and risky. Budgets, yes. Faith budgets, no. But they shouldn't. How could life be any other way other than this? How could it possibly be that when we serve the God who providentially governs the entire world, how could that not also mean that he goes before us and leads us according to his will in ways that are miraculous beyond our control? Do you remember Nehemiah's words when he spoke with the king? The king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. And there will be days when the hand of God is upon you in a way that's not true all the time. People of faith notice the lead of the Spirit. It's part of, our, it's part of growing into maturity. We look up from our plans. We don't get so, we don't get so bonded to our structures that we can't notice when the Lord is at work directly in front of us. We don't get so confident of our systems that we would neglect people sitting in the room with us. Not everything in God's will for you will be according to your plans. It's a good thing. Because that extra spectacular 1% is often <laughs> the most significant stuff. It's, it's where the real work is done that we've been waiting for and asking for. How many of you are sitting here today as a believing person, because some grandmother prayed for you for decades. And after decades of consistent requests, one day you woke up and the Lord knocked on your heart and your eternity changed. Let's look up. Now, others amongst us love the spontaneous and routine is a challenge. You are the people who sign on to rosters and don't come. Once again, you know who you are. <laughs> and for you, growth is going to come from seeing that without the four months of consistency, Nehemiah doesn't get to this day. I don't understand it. I don't know how the eternal sovereign God relates to our prayers in answering them, but he does. I know that's true. And I know that the king spoke up and asked Nehemiah, what's the happy haps, friend? Why the long face? In response to Nehemiah's prayer. In response to Nehemiah's prayer. That is God saying yes to four months of badgering. We don't get to this day without, without that long-term, consistent, stable faithfulness. You don't have one without the other. These two things are not in competition with each other. What this is meant to do is to motivate you to see that the ordinary has meaning, to see that it matters, to see that when we gather on Wednesday night to pray, that you should be there praying with us, that fellowship matters, that your devotional life, every morning as you, as you wake up, that's when I do it, you can do it at another portion of the day. It's not the time that matters. It's the rhythm. 
It's the daily dependence on the grace of God that slowly transforms you. It's, your, it's, it's you bringing your joys and your sadnesses and your requests to him and laying them at the feet of the cross and saying, Lord, bless us, please, beyond what we deserve. Would you move in your rescuing power? It's the training yourself in understanding the revealed will of God in the Bible so that when you're in that moment, you know how to answer. If you want to be useful in the spectacular moment, then you need to be faithful today. If you want more of those spectacular moments, you need to ask today. And so these things are not enemies, and we need to grow in both. We need to grow in the stable rhythms of grace. We need to grow in basic holiness. And at the same time, we need to, people, we need to be people who, who grow in that way, knowing that we will need to look up to keep our eyes open and to know that we serve a living and active God, a supernatural and miraculous God who will change the details according to the counsel of his own will, according to his immovable power. Can you relate to this? Have you seen both of these things play out in your life, either as the recipient who is being blessed by that moment or as the one who was called to bless another? What a beautiful thing. It seems to me that throughout the book of, of Nehemiah, we as a church are going to be encouraged to think about, in a large scale, what the Lord is doing in this world, what the Lord is doing in our city, what the Lord is doing in our community, that is about bringing blessing, that is about bringing rescue, that is about bringing salvation to the lost, that is about changing changing a trajectory. I mean, that, that's, that's bigger than our control. Just, just like Nehemiah's burden for Jerusalem was, was bigger than he as a single man could hope to change. We're called to desire and to want to see Jesus intervene in our families, in our friends, in our workplaces, in our culture. To hope for it, to pray for it, to ask for it. And then to notice when God says yes, how it is that we can get involved in surprising ways. The reason we can do that is because this whole thing is about grace. This is the ministry that God is doing in the world. And in his exciting way, he is calling you to play your part, whatever that may be. Would we be found faithful? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for a gospel of grace. For the fact that despite what our sins deserve, you have sent your Son into this world to make you known, to intervene, to rescue and to redeem, to save and to reconcile, to bring what is not <laughs> into being to recreate us and to rescue this world. It is that grace, Father, which is our confidence that we can call you, Father. That grace 
forgives us. It rescues us. It transforms us. It gives us hope. It is the single most precious thing which we have. You've told us that people can't serve two masters. We'll love one and hate the other. Father, we love you. (laughs) You are our greatest treasure. We met you in the grace of Jesus that comes only by the cross. We thank you that you have done this work in us. And Father, it is our prayer that you would do that same work in others. Would you bring the prodigals home? Would you save the lost sheep? Would you pursue and rescue those who are of another fold? Would you go and collect them and bring them so that there will be one flock and one shepherd? Father, we look at our lives and it feels so much like we are living in an age of decline, especially for the church. We see all the ways very easily in which it it feels like... (laughs) A fighting retreat. It it, it can feel like your church is shrinking. It can feel like the battle is lost. The the suffering and affliction in our lives seems all-consuming. Father, we thank you that in your grace none of that is true. That, That... that every name written in your book will come safely home, that the full number will be brought in, that none of those whom you have given to Christ's hands will ever be lost. Father, our hope and our prayer is that you will intervene in our world today like you did in the day of Nehemiah, that you would change the course of nations and bring your blessing that you would intervene, (laughs) that we would see our prayer is, Father, in our day, (laughs) a move of your spirit like to those we read of in the pages of history. Would you revive us and renew us, we pray. Would you you change it (laughs) so that instead of being the forbidden conversation, talking about you as a daily norm in this world, Would you increase the dissatisfaction of a material world that they would know that sin promises and does not deliver? That they would know that without you, our lives lack their proper meaning and their hope. That they would see the coming judgment and its peril and know that there is an escape. Would you intervene, our God, in our world and rescue and redeem? Would the name of Jesus be famous in this country because of the redeeming and rescuing work you have done? This is our daily prayer. Father, when we pray for that, we are praying for something that we cannot create. This must be, it needs to be, a work of your spirit alone. It needs to be miraculous. Only you can do this, our God, and to you belongs the glory when you do. 
And we who are here today as your children, we offer ourselves up and say, however you would like us to get involved, whatever small part we can play, whatever link in the chain you need us to be, would you lead us into faithfulness in the small and the ordinary, not knowing where things will lead to. Help us to be faithful as we raise our children in your ways and in the knowledge and the delight of the Lord. Help us to be bold in our workplaces, willing to take the risk. (laughs) Nehemiah risked his life in faithfulness. What a praiseworthy thing. Perhaps I can risk a reprimand from the boss to answer someone's questions over lunch. Would you increase our godliness of character that what we say would match what we do and how we live? Would we live holy lives that bring you praise? (laughs) Would all people see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven? Lord, would we rest well when it's time to rest? knowing that you are God and we are not, and that six days is sufficient for work, and the seventh is for resting and trusting. There's a weekly rhythm of grace that gives us the fuel to keep going for a lifetime. Lord, would you bring about those moments? those moments beyond planning, those moments beyond control, where we can't help but say, the good hand of my God was upon me. And in that moment, by the grace which comes through Jesus, would I be found willing and able. I can't think of a better way to use my life, my God. Would you do that in us and for us and through us. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.